I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this is Monetize Media. On today's episode, we speak with John Miller, founder of Scribewise, a content marketing firm. John is an expert when it comes to leveraging content to grow your business and close sales. He works with clients across a range of verticals to help them craft their content strategy to get their brand in front of the right audience. While not our typical guest, John understands how content can serve as a top-of-funnel tactic to generate business opportunities, something any creator can learn from. Listen now as John walks us through how businesses can use content, building his agency, the local sports website he founded that employed Stephen A. Smith and created national reporters, and the process of selling and reacquiring his own business. On to the interview. All right, I want to welcome on John Miller, president and founder of Scribewise, a content marketing agency, and also a longtime friend. John, welcome to yet another podcast. <laughs> hey, Kyle. Great to see you. Jason, good to see you as well. Thank you. So give our audience here, we always ask for the origin story or the background. What's professionally between leaving college and coming to this interview in 90 seconds or less? No, just kidding. I went to Syracuse for college. I always wanted to be a sportscaster. Got into uh, radio and television in Philadelphia, covered a lot of sports, couldn't quite get my lucky break. So I got out of it, went into public relations. And then actually when I got out of it, I got what would my pseudo lucky break, which I got, I came back from a vacation and had a voicemail from the Philadelphia Eagles saying, hey, do you want to do pre and post game radio for us? Out of the blue. So I did that for most of the Andy Reid era, like 20 to 2013, 2013. And in 2010, I left the PR agency I was at, and I had two ideas. One was called Philly Sports Daily, which is when you and I met Kyle. And the other one was what became Scribewise. And I did, went with Philly Sports Daily at first. And it was the wrong choice. <laughs> we were like, I, sometimes I tell people like we were a junior version of The Athletic, but nobody would do, I, you could argue that no one's doing paid subscriptions now either, but uh, certainly no one could, would pay for content back in 2010. So we... I tell people that was um, an artistic success, but a business failure. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> All right. So let's pick up there because I think that's where, and we certainly want to get into the content marketing agency side because I think that's probably going to be most important for the audience. But you started, I remember at the time you told me you wanted Philly Sports Daily. I, the Athletic wasn't around. So you referred to it, I believe, as the Politico for Philly Sports. Whereas I had the website that was more like the TMZ version of that. And we had a very informal content partnership arrangement. But you guys were producing some really good journalism around Philly sports in a local market. So talk a little bit about what Philly Sports Daily was, some of the people who you had on the site and whose careers you may have started, and also why it, it struggled to work as a business. Because to your point, artistically, you know, it was very good. The content was top notch. But as I understand, I'm sure many others do, local content businesses can be very difficult now, let alone more than a decade ago. So one of the things we said, we were uh, obsessive coverage for obsessive fans. So that was, we really wanted to be fast paced, always get our stories up first and cover the teams like maniacs. One of my conceits back at the time was that if people read five articles about the Phillies punter, they'd still read a sixth, which I don't think is, it's certainly not true now. It might've been true then, or it might've been just my wish that didn't come true. But we had... Tim McManus, who covers the Eagles for ESPN, really kind of jump-started his career. Steve Wino, who covers the NHL for Associated Press. 
launched his career. Stephen A. Smith was between jobs. He worked for us, revitalized his career a little bit. Philadelphia uh, fans will know the name Bill Lyon, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. He worked for us. So like we had real talent, a couple of talk show hosts in town. We had some real talent for sure. We were very focused on creating the product and not enough on selling the product. So it was, we just didn't go out and sell enough. And it required, you know, I was basically competing with sports, sports talk stations and they're, they have tickets to the games, they're whining and dining people. And I was just trying to win that revenue game based on logic, which didn't really fly with car dealers and bar owners. Yeah, you weren't showing up with two giant speakers and scantily clad women handing out flyers. and No. Yeah. No. Well, you tried. Maybe you tried. And we actually did try that once. It didn't go well. <laughs> There's probably a great future piece to be had on you know, the changes in digital content over the years. Because I agree, John, there was, there was a time, even in our previous you know, business exercises here with Kyle and I, where we had purchased a site that's kind of had that similar approach. And we knew that it had to be more nuanced to be opinionated to kind of match up with today's readers. And I just bring it up as it's sometimes the best intent of a business just has the bad timing of a market shift, you know, and we can't always know what that's going to be and when it's going to happen. Yeah, well, we, sometimes when I'm feeling good about myself, I'll say we were too far out in front, but that's a problem as well, you know? Like if you're too far in front of the market, that's your fault to a certain extent. Unless you're going to raise a crap ton of money and create a market. And we weren't doing that. We were bootstrapping it. And we just kind of missed the moment. And, you know, working side, not side by side, but it's kind of some sort of side by side with Kyle to see how he grew his site traffic, how he turned it into a business. And I know, you know, it's it wasn't a straight line up and to the right, right? But you definitely had more momentum. And you had a couple of, I mean, I frankly would say that you were a little more digitally savvy than me. And you had a couple of little things along the way where you were able to transform that into an audience. And we were doing it, you know, click by click, day by day. And that's, you need that big moment. We never really had that. Yeah. And to your point, convincing at the time, there wasn't really the best. Now I think there's a lot of other opportunities, which, you know, I've tapped into over the years, like apparel and affiliate opportunities. Certainly now sports betting has changed for anyone in sports. But at the time it was like, I remember we went to bars and we were trying to get, you know, 500, we literally were handed $500 cash from a bar one time. And, you know, you're like, this is not, this is not a sustainable way to run a business. All right. So you said earlier that, okay, you chose the wrong one first. But one of the things we've noticed with every guest, well, I think almost to a man or woman on the show so far, is that doing something and having it not work, it was oftentimes one of the best things that ever happened to them or their business, even if it, if it caused them to pivot. And frankly, you know, I'm in the same boat. You know, I, I was relying on the same advertising, stuck with it a little longer. And then sure enough, you know, we, we wind up having this unbelievable sports betting affiliate opportunity. It's like, all right, we have to pivot and now focus on actually really extracting the dollars from, from what we've built. But all those failures along the way of learning that $500, $1,000 here and there is going to be impossible to scale. Talk about the key learnings and why... You know, I wouldn't view it if I were you as, as a failure. I view it as like, hey, like I learned something and now I pivoted to this better idea, which is doing much better. Yeah, a ton of them, right? First one is focus more on sales. Like, and, and I allow people who work at big PR agencies or big marketing agencies now decide they're going to go out on their own and they say, what should I do? And I'd say, get, I always say to them, get one client because then money's coming in, which is, 
Very freeing. <laughs> and also I think how to manage a team. Like it was, I grew up in newsrooms. Newsrooms are politically incorrect, blunt, obnoxious places. And that's, you know, not a great way to deal with people. So I think I, my team here might disagree sometimes, but I think I've become a lot better at managing a team and trying to have a kinder, gentler approach to just managing the team. So you pivot to idea number two, which is Scribewise. Right. Explain what Scribewise is. What do you guys do? So yeah, we're a content marketing agency. We like to call ourselves a brand dialogue agency. So every brand, B2C, B2B, has a conversation going on around it. Sometimes it's really loud. Sometimes it's really angry. Sometimes it's really joyous. Sometimes it's really quiet. But we help them drive that. So our team is mostly made up of people who are first and foremost great writers, but also strategists. But we're very rigorous in who we hire as a writer, as, as, as an employee. And then as the years have gone by, we've added in more and more design. So when we first started, which was 2012, we're 10 years old now, I used to describe us as an outsourced newsroom. And content marketing was just kind of coming along. And I was thought to myself, there's no way these companies will figure out how to make content. They don't know how to do it. And so we were just banging out stories like crazy. It wasn't really SEO focused per se, but we were, it was more thought leadership, news you can use sometimes, um, focused more on B2B than B2C. And as time went by, we, we realized our clients were like screwing up their social media when they, when they tried to promote our content or putting it on a lousy website. So we just started saying, well, let us take that, let us take that piece. And then like four or five years ago, we said, you know, we're really good storytellers. Your brand is a story. So let's start doing branding. And we kind of spoke it into existence. And then about a year after that, we said, well, the best brand expression that all of our clients have is their website, or at least it needs to be. So let us start doing websites. So we started doing websites. So we've really kind of defined our work with clients as we help them figure out their brand story. And then we help them tell that story in an ongoing way. So our three main buckets of work are content creation, content experience, and content distribution. Content experience is very design-oriented, but it's also acknowledging that just words on a page are not enough all the time now. You've got to put some more energy to it. Maybe it becomes an animated video. Maybe it becomes something we call a story stream, which is a long scrolling page. There's a, a term that I wish I'd come up with called scrolly telling. But it's the idea of, of creating something that's a lot, it's just a more energetic way of telling a story. So just trying to combine all of those things and really focus mostly on B2B, sexy industries like insurance. But those are some of the most high value, <laughs> those are some of the most high value industries, right? Yeah, one of the things we say is we humanize complex business conversations. So the more complex an industry, the more like, the more we like to dig into it. Like it's a team of geeks and nerds that really gets excited about learning about something they never learned about before or knew about before. We have clients in what's called loss prevention for retailers. I never heard of that a year or two years ago. Service lifecycle management, never heard of it. But it's fascinating stuff that is big business. You had a story on your website, and this might be a scrolly stream. Do I have that right? Story stream? I'd be happy you didn't come up with that. It's a little cringy. It, it, it makes sense. Scrolly telling? I would love to... I love a pun. That's a good pun. Scrolling telling. 
It's called the SEO delusion. Yes. So I think maybe this is a little bit what you're talking about because I'm scrolling through it right now and it says it's not just about the volume of traffic. It's about getting in front of the right people, which is definitely a theme we've heard from every guest, be it an, an Instagram person to a blogger to a newsletter writer who's been on the show, you know, really hammered this home. But I imagine in industries like insurance and some of these like really wonky B2B things, you're never going to get a million readers because there's just not a million people who care. But if you get the right, even in those industries, 40 people reading, and that turns into two customers, like talk about why that's important. Because I think this applies to even this, the general creator economy right now. Everyone wants a billion Instagram followers, but you know, no one is really actually going to get that. But if you're the guy who specializes in like hubcap lug nuts, right, you might have an audience that you can monetize in the right way. Right. Right. And, and then you read the stories about the people with a billion Instagram followers. Their life is exhausting because they can never turn it off. Right. But like we have a number of clients who have 40 customers or 25 customers because they're selling, you know, million dollar engagements. So they don't need the next hundred customers. They need the next three to five. Like we have 15 clients. I don't need 15 more clients. I mean, I don't cook 15 more clients would be scary. I didn't need the next three to five. And most businesses are in that boat, especially in the B2B realm. And I think if you're selling affiliate marketing for gambling, SEO makes more. If you're selling socks, SEO makes a lot of sense, right? But if you're selling, if you're Deloitte or some huge consulting firm, you're not going to win the business based upon your SEO performance. The person buying services from Deloitte has heard of Deloitte. And I think a lot of digital marketers get very focused on the activity. Because it's like you can go and it's in the, if you read in the SEO delusion, we allude to this, you can spend your days just tweaking the dials a little bit and watching the things go up and down. And it's cool and it's interesting and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And like, but are you having any impact? So that's really the premise behind that piece. John, how are obviously from your previous ventures, you know, and that's been the sports idea space and then into this, how did you attack looking for that first customer? And then how did, was it online? Were you going offline? Talk about some of that and utilizing, you know, what was advertising ideas or just trying to grow, you know, your reach online to get that to that customer base. It starts with the relationships typically, especially in a business like mine. So an old client came out of the woodwork. Somebody said, Hey, these people are looking for a PR agency. Like, Oh, we could pretend to be that. <laughs> Don't worry. They're not listening to this. <laughs> no, they might. We still have them as client 10 years later. So We've convinced them. But I think you just have to grab the stuff that's nearby. One of the things I talk a lot about, Jason, is, um, and this is where our clients, we find, a lot of times they're adolescent companies. So they're kind of in that awkward, ungainly phase. And they don't know, want to be, don't know what they want to be when they grow up. And they don't know how to get there because they've kind of maxed out those personal relationships and the, the one degree of separation type of things. Because that's how most small businesses start, right? It's my, my nephew is in a position where he can hire me for $2,000 a month. And I start there and I just kind of build from there. And ultimately, you throw them to the curb because they're only paying you $2,000 a month. But, um, but that was real. I mean, ours was mostly personal networks and then being opportunity. And then sometimes it's a friend of a friend of a friend. But you need to have, I think, an opinion more than examples a lot. I just read something about that this morning. You need to have a mindset and an opinion on where things are going. And that's a lot of times how you're going to win those deals, especially early on when you really don't have examples. So a lot of what we do for our clients is thought leadership 
And you have to have your own thought leadership to win those deals. At least in our business is ostensibly a consulting business. So how does a business then that is in that awkward growth phase use the content? You guys are helping them PR, branding, you know, the whole shebang. But specifically, how are they using content and in what ways to get from point A to A to C? A lot of times they need to stop and take a look at what their brand story is because they've just kind of bolted things on it as they've gone along. Like, oh, we can figure that out. Oh, we can figure that out. And they, they do. But then their story is just a mishmash. So we will oftentimes come in a company in that situation and streamline that and make it much more cohesive. And to a certain extent, yes, they can still do some of those tangential things, but we don't need to make them part of the story. So that's a big part of it. And then by creating thought leadership content, you're creating content that starts to build trust. So a lot of times we're helping them with, um, if you're familiar with account-based marketing, we're helping them with account-based marketing light is what I would say. Because account-based marketing is oftentimes using a Salesforce type platform, but there's a couple of other platforms. And we're not necessarily doing that, but we're talking to our clients and being journalistic and getting insight into the conversations they're having with their clients and prospects. And then we'll build a blog post or an ebook or an infographic or whatever around that. And that becomes the next piece because if someone has a question, everybody has the same question typically. So we're trying to give them something that they can use in the moment you know, a week later with that client, but also with the idea that they're going to be able to use that 15 more times. Are you seeing the types of content that work change? So is it all written content? Are you doing any podcasting or videos? Is that next? Or is it traditional, you know, the written, the white paper, the ebook still gets, helps convert a high ticket client? It depends on where they are in the sales funnel. Video certainly is at the top of the funnel is what's converting the most right now. The blog posts are kind of the steady drumbeat of most campaigns, I would say, and most initiatives. Nobody reads a white paper because <laughs> it's just, you know, blech. And, you know, there's also what, 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 what do you mean by white paper? What do you mean by an ebook? So to us, an, an ebook is a much more visually pleasing version of a white paper. And you've got, at some point in that sales cycle, you probably need that piece to prove that you have a thought in your head, that your company has a thought in its head. So it becomes a credibility piece. And it depends on the industry. Like we're not super prescriptive with anybody. Like we, we always say we're channel agnostic. So are you posting on social media or we just had a client call this morning talking about how successful their email marketing is going. Email's still really good. And Zuckerberg can't change the rules on it, you know, or Elon Musk can't change the rules. So I own my email list and I can do at least so far whatever I want with it. And then, you know, but you, then you need sales collateral too. So it's all the way down that funnel. And what we'd like to do is if we can map out the buyer's journey with our client, their best guess, and say, what are all the different inflection points along that journey? And can we create some type of content at each spot there? So a couple of shows ago, we did 10 takeaways from the first 10 interviews we had. And uh, one of the, the main ones, for me at least, was that so many of the people, even people that have pretty big audiences, you know, with 100,000 followers on Instagram or YouTube, right? The message was still the same is they cared more about, you know, almost nobody relied solely on advertising, right? And they cared more about getting the right people because they one guy was able to create an investment arm off his business. We had Jason Barrett, who you probably know of, the sports uh, sports radio publication. I'm oh, yeah. Barrett Sports Media talked about, you know, he just wants to be in front of 10 program directors because then he can get them to show up to his events and he can sell tickets to his events. And what you're describing with businesses sounds similar in that, you know, again, you don't need that broad. You need the right 
people. Is there an opportunity though, you know, if you're not a business, so everything right now is in your world, I guess, you know, you got businesses and they need certain types of content to convert people into customers. I've talked to Jason on the show about, I, I think there's this shift happening in the world where you look at like someone like Mr. Beast, right? Where you have a content person who can then create a burger business off of that, where he's the most extreme example. But I'm wondering, do you think there are opportunities for individuals or small groups of people to start as a content business in a very narrow focus niche, like B2B insurance lines for, I don't know, you know, wiring installation, you know, something really niche where they're just creating content and then the product presents itself based on what they're hearing from the audience and what they're discovering is they're creating content. Do you see almost like that paradigm flipping at some point or living side by side, businesses creating content and content creators creating a business off that content? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's both. You see a company like Red Bull in the content marketing circles, people always say like Red Bull's a media company that sells a drink on the side. And there's, um, I don't know if you have heard of uh, or talked to Joe Polizzi, who is the founder of the Content Marketing Institute, which is a thing. I've read his <laughs> book, believe it or not. So Content Inc. is, he's written a couple, but Content Inc. is the book. And that's exactly what you're talking about, which is build an audience through content and then sell them something. Now you need to be able to survive for six to six to twelve months without selling anything. <laughs> but you know, if you do what you did, do what I did, you know, do it on the side without your employer knowing. <laughs> I think that's okay. But I think there's also, and I'm blanking on the guy who wrote this book, but it, it was ostensibly saying, actually, it might have been in that book, Content Inc., where he had there was an artist of some sort who had a hundred paying customers, and he was making bank or at least a good living. You know, they were paying him a thousand bucks a year or whatever. He wasn't working that hard or something like that. But I think you can absolutely do that. But there is also the business reality of how do you bridge the gap? Like, what are you doing? So you have some income, unless you don't need income. Yeah. And that's the, uh, you know, just take Mr. Beast as the example. And that's where I think it begins to break down is if you're a content business and now all of a sudden, Mr. B, you know, there are companies that are that are serving as intermediaries and third party to fulfill burgers, right? And they're spinning up these ghost kitchens all over the country. But let's just say Mr. Beast creates a cheeseburger business. Well, all of a sudden, you're no longer a content creator, you're a cheeseburger company, right? And there's a huge difference between, you know, I've experienced this with t-shirts, right? And that's a relatively easy thing to make and sell. But if you're in a business, you can create content, you can create a business off that. But then at some point, you have to decide, am I the business or am I the content arm? Right. And that's where it gets tricky. Right. And are you making enough on the one side so that you can, somebody else can be the content people, right? Because they're different businesses. Like even to a certain extent, Gary Vaynerchuk, it's, he had a bunch of content. People thought he was good at it. So they started hiring him as a consultant. So it's, it's the same business, but it's not the same business. Obviously you have different customers in individual type verticals, but is there a, is there something that kind of crosses over in terms of a mistake that you consistently see potentially and how they are attacking something on the online side of their business? I think people still rush to the sale and you can't do that at all. The, the customer is in charge of the relationship. So, I mean, you guys probably get the, I get these every day. I get an, a LinkedIn in mail from someone who wants to sell me something. I've never heard of the person before. They haven't built up any trust. It's the same offer every time from someone different. Like, because the world is flat, you can buy from anyone in the world. So why am I going to buy from you? So you need to build up that trust over time. This statistic's like 10 years old, but in B2B, 66% of the buying cycle occurs before the salesperson knows the prospect is thinking of buying something. And that's 
That's 10 years old. It's certainly more than that now. But think, think about how you buy anything. You do your online research, you talk to people, you don't talk to a salesperson right away, but companies still get impatient and try to dive in and it's off-putting and then you don't get the sale. Do you think part of that is, has the internet made that better or worse? And I say that because more than 20 years ago, the way an insurance company or a local hospital would promote their business was there was traditional PR and doing events and sponsoring things and getting the name out there in the community, but it was mostly advertising. You advertise in the newspaper, you advertise on radio, you advertise on TV. You know, you could still, you obviously can still do those things, but they're becoming less concentrated. So there's more places to advertise, more ways to reach people. But because the bar to create content is so low, is it, you know, and I guess talk your book here and probably part of, you know, playing in the, your sales pitch here too, but it's like, how much more is important that they're also creating content and building an organic audience that they don't have to go pay the local news station $30,000 to run an ad campaign. And they could, you know, form a relationship with 10 important people instead of reaching 300,000 people watching the six o'clock news or something. I would say the internet's democratized everything, obviously, right? But to an absurd extent. So you can't just create content for the sake of creating it because you'll never, it's the same as that Instagram influencer with a billion followers, like it doesn't stop. So if it's just purely based on those, like feeding the beast and getting, you know, whoever is going to be on your, just randomly attracted people on your website who are not in a position to buy, Maybe they'll be in a position to buy 15 years into their career. You're wasting your time, really. So I think in terms of how you go about it, you need to really understand who your customer is, really understand how they buy, and then create the content that they almost don't know they want yet, which is hard. But, and then you got to get in front of them when they're not necessarily looking for it. So oftentimes, paid component, there is a paid component to that. We did a LinkedIn campaign a year or so ago with a consulting firm that has 25 clients and their buyers are C-level people. And it's a complicated sale and it takes months. And if you're familiar with LinkedIn advertising, if you have too small of an audience, you don't spend the money because you don't reach anybody. And that was what happened. And we said to him, well, you're not going to reach him. You have to reach, we have to make it these 5,000 people, not these 500, just to run the campaign. It was an experiment, so it wasn't a big deal, but the campaign didn't work because we couldn't even spend the money. Because he said, we really don't want those other 4,500 people. So LinkedIn's a bad, that means LinkedIn is a bad channel for them, at least a paid LinkedIn. So you just have to learn those things as you go and understand and learn the nuances of the individual client's audience. And it's sometimes, it's, you know, obviously things that you don't expect to happen, happen. I think one of, the, one of the unfortunate things that social media has done for us, and I think will continue to do, unfortunately, for the next generation, is they will look for value in pointless metrics. And, you know, likes and whatever, followers and things of that nature. And I know for years with some of the sites that I've owned, there were metrics that were, oh, I got X amount of visitors today. And I tried this channel on it. But to your point, you, who cares if they're not the right people? And I think there's just so many people that are starting a business, an online business, whatever it is, that they're so, they're grasping for anything to feel optimistic and that they're moving in the right direction but they're not diving down to that next level because the former is such so much of a longer path to if you just go and understand of for whom you are going to go after and is the true client or customer. I just feel like it takes so many businesses too long to recognize that proper switch of, of just exactly who that visitor, client, customer should be. Yeah, that's one of our big 
diatribes about SEO. It's like we had a client that was a kind of a new kind of dental insurance is the way I'll describe it. And they had an SEO firm who said there's a ton of traffic to be had if we write an article with the headline, are these dental plans legal, basically. And dentists were their customers. The dentists are how they made money, how this co- and I said to them, who's Googling that? Dentists or patients? And they said, we don't know. And I'm like, well, get the hell out then. Who cares? <laughs> the intent is so huge. I think we've heard from other people too that that understanding the intent, and our last guest was a guy named Miles Beckler, who's a really good tactical digital marketing guy. He's, he's got a pretty big following on YouTube. And he talked a lot about this too, and how different the intent is through search. And you know, obviously amongst keywords, if you're searching for dentist near me today, right, you're a customer. If you're searching for that legal term you just talked about, you're another dentist or somebody in the industry, two totally different things. But the, just the intent between SEO and social and other channels is very, very different. And you know, a 1x, a one person in the audience for one intent or one keyword is much different than you know, a different channel. If you're finding that C-suite person on LinkedIn at the right time, their intent might be different than someone who's searching for an unrelated term. And I think anybody at any level of content understanding not just what you're creating and, who, and the number of people who are reading it, but who's reading it and what mindset they're in when they're reading it or, or listening to it or watching it or whatever it is. All right, so you sold your business and then you bought it back. I have that right, right? Yes, uh, that is correct. All right. So you're <laughs> talking to two guys who sold their business and just left, right? So we might be able to commiserate a bit. I feel your pain. <laughs> but talk about your experience of selling your business, selling a content-based, client-based business, which is trickier than just a product-based business. So talk about selling it and then what didn't work and then what compelled you to buy it back and be as detail-oriented as you'd like because I think this acquisition stuff is, is an interesting topic. It was, so I, I met this group in 2014 and I remember having a first meeting, really just a get-to-know-you type meeting and walking out and thinking to myself, oh, it'd be awesome if they bought us in two years because it's, I like the people there and the rest of their business seemed like we could, like we were, they did marketing and technology services. They had nothing around content or PR, which is where our focus was then. Two months later, they came to me and said, we want to buy you. And I said, you know, that's ridiculous. But then as we were talking, I convinced myself that it was almost like taking venture capital money, right? It was like, how do, who cares how I grow and get to where I want to go if it's part of a business, another business, or if I'm out there trying to raise funds or whatever it might be. So we closed in fall of 2020, no, not 2020, 2014. And their financials, because I saw their financials, their financials were great. And I probably should stop talking about that right now. But within three to four months, I realized that people, within a month, I was like, people seem kind of frantic because <laughs> things were going a little bit sideways. And then within six months, I was talking to my friends like, hey, should I get out of this deal? Like, this is a mess. And the thing, we didn't do enough due diligence. We got married without dating almost, you know? So we were saying a lot of the same words, but we didn't necessarily mean the same thing. It turns out I'm not a good employee. <laughs> so <I> was, <laughs> we know the feeling. It's weird. None of our guests, they've all said they're not good employees. Miles Beckler has a term that people now use is psychologically unemployable. Guilty. So it was was a a real roller coaster. And then 21 months after they acquired us, I bought it back. So our scribe-wise specific revenue was less than half when I bought it back. 
because I'm, I blame them mostly. We were a five-person team when I got acquired. I was the only one left. The, one of the few good things is that at this other company was that I met one of my top folks now. She's been with me now for over six years and then more because we, we worked together side by side and we're part of the other company. So yeah, July 1st, 2016 is known here as Scribewise Independence Day. <laughs> so did you, you said you wanted to keep growing the business. When they bought you, did you get, did you have targets to hit over a period of a couple of years? And then if so, you're nodding. So judging by, you know, like they scaled back the business, hurt the business, you bought it back. Were you able to get it for cheaper that you bought it? Like what, did, without going into the numbers, like what did just sort of the trajectory of that look like? That, that sounds like a messy situation outside of just being unhappy. Like it sounds like there's maybe some dollars at stake there. Yeah, it was, it was very much an aqua hire when they bought us. So a lot of my upside was an earnout, and they had, you know, we were five people. They had a six person sales team. So I'm thinking this is, we're selling content marketing in 2014. It's going to be a piece of cake. I sold more of their services in 21 months than they sold of mine. They couldn't sell it. I don't understand why, but they couldn't get it done. And, you know, not, it's not all their fault. I'm sure some of it's my fault because I'm a bad employee, psychologically unfit to be an employee. So the numbers, it's weird to like do the one-to-one numbers. I basically had it back for a little bit less, yes. So, so but there was, there was lots of different, like we provided them services for a time afterwards. And, you know, and that was a big chunk of the payment. So I think there's certainly the due diligence side of things. Now, I'll, I'll walk the line here carefully as well. For our listeners out there, if you are going to be acquired or if you're merging, if you're doing something, you cannot feel like you are nagging someone or you are asking too many questions. Like you have to dig down deep to really get an idea, especially if you're being acquired, what type of shared services and things that that company has. Them just saying that they have an accounting department or they have legal representation or they have whatever. It is the same as you know, a bird flying by and, and it accidentally drops something on the ground. Oh, that was useful. Yeah, it did nothing for you. You, know, you have to ask questions. You need to speak to people in those departments. You need to know where those departments are located in the world. I can't stress that enough for any of our listeners who are out there who merging, acquisition, whatever, be annoying. Ask as many questions as you possibly can because this type of story is now being heard over and over and over and over again, where we thought we were aligned. We thought the other side had this. And so many times they simply do not. Yeah. Just because they have an accountant doesn't mean they're a good accountant, right? It's like, <laughs> there's bad accountants out there too. So, and there was also, uh, there was philosophical differences. There were cultural differences that on the surface, it all seemed good. I'll just, yeah, I'll, I shouldn't say that the next thing I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold, hold back. <laughs> All right, so you bite back. You know, things are going well. It sounds like business is upticked, um, ticked up. So, talk about your team. You talked about managing a team, right? I think for people who are psychologically unemployable, I've found it can be difficult to manage certain types of people. Jason and I have, there's some people that we have absolutely loved having work for us because they have a similar mentality. They can't have the same mentality because, you know, our mentality, John, uh, you know, me and Jason, John, your mentality, I know most of our guests is, hey, we want to do something. I want to own it. I want it to be mine. Right. And that person is very tough to employ. But there are people who can sit right alongside 
in the passenger, I don't want to say the passenger seat, but can be in the car, but they don't want to be driving it. They don't want all the headaches of having to drive it and having to deal with the legal side and, you know, signing paperwork and all that, but they're really good doers and they have the right mentality. For you, what has worked? What type of person do you look for on your team? Because it's still a relatively small team, you know, as, as you mentioned. So what do you look for? Because it's probably different than the type of person who wants to go work at, you know, Comcast with thousands of employees who wants to go work for Scribewise. Yeah. We actively avoid big company people. I think it's too easy to hide in a big company. I look for people with intellectual curiosity because we're going into these bizarre industries you never heard of. And you've got to be curious to understand the way the business works and to not only understand the way their business works, but be able to lead their marketing, which is basically what we're asking people to do. And I look for, I try to get a sense of whether or not someone is what I call a mission-driven person. I always say that we have no passengers because we can't afford to have passengers because there's 10 of us. So you can't take a nap during the day. We had an employee last year who said that that, who who cops to doing that occasionally. (laughs) Well, that brings up, please please, just please don't tell me that. (laughs) It brings up a good good question though. So with so many people working from home now, the working day seems to have had a very casual, natural extension for some people, to your point, where I'm going to run my errands in the middle of the day, or, you know, it is just plain as day that, you know, I have to pick up my kids and I'm gone from three to four. And that's a little more, you know, that's not, that's not a nap. That's fine. Do you continuously hear about this from some of your customers? I certainly don't want you to speak about your employee base, but it, it, this problem seems to be very pervasive and only, and only getting worse. Well, in terms of our employee base, we've always, I heard the phrase five years ago, CEO time. Like if the CEO wants to go get a haircut, he goes and gets a haircut in the middle of the day because he or she is doing the work that needs to get done, right? You're never fully off. And to your point earlier, you know, not everybody's built to not always, to always be on or at least always be available. But we've always just tried to have as much trust in the team as possible and I've always said, when we had an office, we, we have an office again now, and you know it's different from where it was before. But if you had a dentist appointment in the middle of the day, stay home, work from home. It's just, you know, I don't want you spending three hours going back and forth. That's silly. Sometimes people uh, not really take advantage, but kind of overdo it, I'd say. But for the most part, people are making up the work and they're doing good work. Uh, we, this year, we went to unlimited PTO which you better trust everybody if you have unlimited PTO. And I do. So in terms of our clients, I think we're often dealing with like a director of marketing or a CMO, and they they have that mission-driven piece because they've reached a certain level in their career. But they also oftentimes have teenage kids or an ailing parent or whatever it might be, and they really appreciate the flexibility. Um, so they're not necessarily the ones crabbing about one of the people coming back to the office. I've always found that the best the best people to have working for you are the ones, you know, the best people I think have worked for us, the ones I've never even thought twice about asking, are you on the computer? Are you working? Hey, you need to go so you know, like I gotta go to a doctor's point, right? Never even thought twice, but yeah, sure, go, right? Because you just know the work's gonna get done and you know, they're gonna make themselves available and the work comes out. And I think the the more you have to feel like you're policing someone that's probably the higher the red flag goes up the pole, the more you have to start looking at the clock and say, it's, you know, it's 11 a.m. Where's that first blog post, you know? Right. Yeah. We, uh, I've never said no to a request because you have to, you have to have people that are, uh, and if someone is taking advantage of it, they're, 
they're not going to last one or another. They're going to move on to the next thing, whatever it might be. So I know you got to go in a minute. So what are some trends you're seeing in just content in general right now? Because you know, you're able to touch a whole bunch of different industries, different types of content, you know, beyond just like TikTok videos. Like what are you seeing right now that's really working for your clients? I would say animated video. We're starting to do more and more of that animated data visualization. Um, and the other big thing that we're in very early days of doing, but we're trying to figure out how to drag our clients into the metaverse. And I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to do something in the next 12 months with that. Because I do think if you've had a chance to be in any metaverse instances, it's an extremely intimate, immersive experience. It's, it, the first time I was in an instance, of, and I was like, holy crap, I thought this was really just a bunch of BS. But it's like I, I say to my team, like, we're in the blue and yellow Comic Sans websites era of the metaverse, but it's going to be huge. <laughs> um, and it's a great storytelling environment. So we have to figure that out. I'm going to put you down in the bullish column for metaverse here. Yes. Put you in bullish. Okay. So I, I don't want to know about your intimate metaverse experiences though. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that for another show. Not like that. I should have realized who I was talking to. Like that. <laughs> well, you know, it says that industry leads the way on everything, on all new tech. That's true. It wasn't that though, I promise. All right. So plug away. Tell our audience where they could find you, Scribewise, because you're a good follow on Twitter too for all things content related. Oh, thank you. Scribewise.com. I'm Scribe Miller on Twitter, although you probably get more snarky Philadelphia sports takes and content marketing stuff there. And then LinkedIn. We're very active on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn through our, the Scribewise page. And yeah, we're very focused. We, we launched a campaign not quite two months ago calling for courageous marketing. And we're getting really good feedback on that. So scribewise.com slash courage. And we've created a lot of content around the idea that as a marketer, your job is to make the company stand out. And sure, we're in uncertain times, but we're always in uncertain times. And if you are hiding and trying to not be noticed because you're afraid to make a mistake because there's a recession coming, you're not doing your job. So the idea of courageous marketing is something that's leading us to have some really good conversations. So check that one out. Sounds good. John, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me yet again on another podcast. <laughs> Kyle, Jason, great to see you guys. Thanks, man. Appreciate the invite. All right. So that was my good friend, John Miller. Jason, what do you make of the content agency business? I do not envy John in the sense of having to deal with people with who clients. may have, with clients, well, first of clients, yeah. yeah. That's something I think that we're psychologically not prepared to do. But having to, and we talked about this on the pod, having people come in with predetermined thoughts on their business and then having to tell them potentially, you know, like you're wrong, you're focusing on the wrong metrics, you're not, you know, that has to be a very difficult thing to do. And I'm sure he does it extremely well. But that's a big part of the business for him. And I'm sure having case studies and success that he, that he has had thus far makes it a lot easier. But that was one of my first takeaways of like, shit, man, that, that's got to be sometimes a difficult part of the gig that, you know, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, I, I agree. And for me, a big part of it is the big takeaway from the show is looking at content as not being equal, right? And he kind of talked about businesses that were just excited because they were getting eyeballs on social and maybe some traffic to their blog post. But at the end of the day, it might not have really been serving them in any way. And I was actually surprised as to how tailored it seems like the content they create is. 
I was under the impression they worked with, I don't know, say like a local hospital chain, which I think is one of their clients. You know, they create content about high blood pressure, you know, things like that. You know, all the stuff you would expect. You get some search traffic. And it seems like they're way more granular than that. He even talked about creating pieces of content to move people down the sales funnel. So if, if you're looking to close a big business opportunity, putting out a strategic piece of content that helps cinch that deal, you know, very targeted potentially to only one client or potential client. I found that really interesting. But again, it matches what we, we've learned now over these first 10 or 12 episodes, which is that, you know, having the right content in front of the right audience, even if that's only an audience of one or 10 people at a company, might be better than 100,000 or even a million just passive, transient page views. Yeah. I think John also is in a good position depending on which brand it is and the experience that they have, you know, there's a lot of brands and people, entrepreneurs, whatever you want to, however you want to classify it, that do not know how to do certain things, right? Like they'd love to do video, but they don't know how to do it in a way that it looks professional. They'd love to have a consistent presence social. They'd love, you know, when you can bring that process to someone, I think people are certainly willing to, you know, to pay over and above. So having, having those protocols, that process, that set way of doing it for his customers, you know, something that I think people are more than willing to engage for, engage in. And uh, you know, it sounds like John's doing pretty well. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, for me, he talked about Philly Sports Daily, and I know that's not really his focus now. He probably sold himself short a bit. He was onto a great model with that. He wanted to be the politico for local sports. And, and Philadelphia is certainly a market that could support that sort of thing. He was early. This was 2010, 2011 when competition, and for him, it was regular newspaper beat writers, was still writing on the cadence of, we write our article after the game. It gets published in the newspaper. We submitted it before midnight. And that was the cadence. And blogs were certainly starting to disrupt things at that point, at least in local sports journalism. But there weren't really a whole lot of outlets that were credentialed and truly professional covering the X and O's and the beat and the press conference and all that, they were writing for that blog cycle, that 24-7 cycle. And it was actually John's publication here in Philadelphia that pushed, I know, the Inquirer, the local TV station, which was Comcast Sportsnet in Philly, and some of the, uh, the Daily News to begin covering the teams throughout the day and, and having their writers write multiple articles. And I know there was a lot of old school newspaper writers here who hated what John and his team did because it sort of forced their forced them to work harder. Um, but he, he kind of <laughs> pioneered that model. It was just a bit early for advertisers to understand why you'd want to spend with a website when you could spend in a newspaper. But he was before his time. My guess is that Philly Sports Daily existed in 2015. Between 2015 and 2020, it would have been a success for him. So yeah, yeah interesting Timing stuff. is everything. It really is. Timing Timing is, is everything. <laughs> you know, we see it over and over and over again. And I think in essence too, that's why one of the other very interesting parts of the conversation had to do with him acquiring his business back. You know, bad timing, potentially on the acquirer side, advantageous for John to get it back and still be involved and actually get it back for what it sounds like was a little bit a little bit less. You know, we didn't get a lot of details for good reason. And I think we've mentioned this before that there's there certainly will be a show here on monetized media at some point talking about, you know, getting acquired and what you need to know and you know the do's and don'ts because we're we're hearing that from some of our guests you know, we've certainly experienced the sides uh, both sides of the argument uh, from our acquisition so it was uh, certainly 
a crazy story to hear someone sell and then so quickly reacquire a business that they once had. Yeah, really. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, if you are selling your business, think not just about the numbers you're seeing in front of you. Typically, unless it's a strategic buyer that thinks they have some sort of secret sauce or platform where they can make more money with an outlet than you can, which happens a lot of times. But if it's just sort of, a, you know, hey, we want to buy this and harvest the long-term benefits and front you some of the money, which is what a lot of acquisitions is, just think about that because someone has done their work, determined that over time, your asset will make more. And you have to then make the calculation of, is it worth getting all of the next three to five years front-loaded in a one big paycheck? Or is it just owning and holding this asset even longer? So there's a lot that goes into that. But, you know, just be mindful of that and then all of all that of goes with it afterwards. From our standpoint, so now's probably a good time to debut what um, we're going to start working on and chronicle here on this podcast. So we launched a website this week, this month, I guess. <laughs> Recently. <laughs> I learned that we're not good at, so here's the first thing we're not good at. I know, foresight, launching. There's a lot of people who, when they launch anything, will have a pre-planned press attack and announcements and graphics. That ain't us. <laughs> that, that definitely ain't us. There's no doubt. Raising stake. I think it, there's a reason why it ain't us. Is because we believe in a minimum viable product to get something out, of do- out the door. We also are two people who work well with the juices flowing. And there are other people who love to plan. And they love to do everything that you talked about. You know, they'll have a whole wall of a planning process and PR and this and all that. The problem that I think that we have stumbled across for ourselves and others over time is when you do that, there's gaps that you miss and you think you've hit everything. And then as you get to your, you know, step nine of 22 for your launch, you, you go, oh shit, we didn't think of this. So that's why it's like, to me, if you have a minimum viable product, you know what you're doing, get started. Just get started. It gets the juices flowing. We've done that with Raising Steak. I mean, Kyle and I have had countless conversations about things where we change our minds and we were going to go heavy on crypto in a contextual slant. <laughs> and, you know, the crypto world, I will say, I mean, it's fallen on its face recently. It doesn't change my long-term view of crypto. I still think people use it and NFTs and ownership of things and all that's all going to happen. But we've had, to, we've had to quickly pivot as that being one of our core pillars of raising stake. But that's all part of launching a new business. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, I think the people who do the, the plans with the whiteboards with you know three months of planning and having swatches for the six different hues of green they're going to use on their website. Like I'm looking at ours now and we use like this sort of pea green and I don't know, we picked it in like, I don't know, we just drove our finger over the slider and like, yeah, this looks good. What's the hex code for this? Give it to the, give it to the guy who does the logo. <laughs> You know, because you could get lost in that minutia. It's it's easy to tinker as things go along. You know, I find if you take yourself too serious, no one takes you more seriously than you do, right? Good and bad. When something terrible happens to you that you perceive as terrible or embarrassing, yeah, there's people who might, you know, laugh at or whatever. I promise you, no one cares more deeply about that than you yourself. And if something great happens to you, like when we sold our business and, you know, there was some positive pub up out there about us, I'm sure some people were like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And, you know... But no one cared more. No one thought about that the whole day the way you and I did, right? And so it's the same thing with like launching a business. Like if you get the color wrong, if you get the layout wrong, no one cares, right? No one cares. No one's thinking about, oh my God, I can't believe they screwed up that color. You know, people have other things to worry about. 
and your point on the crypto thing. So what we wanted to do with Raising Stake, and the website is raisingstake.com, is cover this sort of high stakes nexus between a lot of the things we know. And I think there's, there's overlapping, if there's a Venn diagram of interest here, particularly people that are maybe on the business side of things, sports, crypto, gambling, and even the lottery, which we'll get to in a second, are sort of these like intersecting business spaces right now. And we wanted to cover that intersection. And really the reason is it's what we know, right? We know, we know these spaces and we thought, you know, this site could interest a lot of people that are like us. You know, sometimes I've heard people, if you're creating content of any type, think about what would you like to consume and then assume that the world is big enough that there's enough people out there who will also want to consume that. And we're like, you know, these things are really interesting to us. We know other people like this in these spaces who are interested in it. Why don't we just do that? Crypto was going to be a big part of that. And then we ultimately decided, A, we don't know crypto as well. B, we're not is well connected with that community. So we weren't sure the content could be that strong. Where we thought there was a big opportunity was covering the regulatory side of crypto, which let's face it, these couple of weeks might've been really interesting. And I think will be interesting for the next two to three years as governments untangle everything that just happened. But it's also a pretty dry topic and we didn't know how to seed it. So we kind of decided to put that mostly on the back burner and bring media into the fold. Because I think you're gonna see over the next few years Take a, a brand like DraftKings. Right now, they're a sports book and casino. Um, they're obviously involved in sports. They're involved in gambling. A lot of these gambling companies want to get into the media game. They want to acquire assets that have audio, that have video, that have written content. And you know, I think five years from now, you're going to see a brand like DraftKings or Fanatics that you can watch a game in, you can bet a game in, you could read about a game in, you could maybe get your tickets in that app. And all of these things kind of touch the same industry, which is, I think, the content idea behind our site. No, agreed. It's, uh, we're in a pivotal, pivotal moment, technology-wise, brand-wise, everything. It's just a crazy time. It's a great time to be in these verticals because you do not know where it's going to go. There's breaking news every day. It makes it challenging when you're launching a brand and you have to hire. I mean, these are, these are certainly things that we're going to get into that we'll update you on in terms of growing our team. And we've already had some, quote, unusual circumstances happen for one of our hires. We probably can't talk too much about. But, you know, it's all part of it. And you think, you, you think you've got something and you're ready to you get all excited and, you know, things just don't go the way you think they're going to go. And that's part of starting a business. And also, too, you know, there's the exciting things of a story hitting a chord with, with the audience. And all of a sudden you go from, you know, 50 page views a day to, you know, 1500 page views the next day because something hit and that's exciting. And then you, all of that is part of growing a business. And, um, you know, it's uh, going to be part of the monetized media raising stake updates as we move forward. Yeah, I think we both really like and enjoy putting stuff out there, seeing how it lands and learning on the fly. So the reason, you know, not having the launch, like, you know, let's get it out there. Let's soft launch it. Let's begin posting about it. I think what we posted it for like a week or two before we even sort of said that, hey, this is us. We're involved in it. We're running it. And I think people began to just sort of figure it out. We had an article written about us. So I guess it's out there now for better or worse. Hopefully people like it. You know, in terms of you know, like this monetized media, we should talk about this. So in terms of monetizing, you know, I said the lottery earlier. So one of the things we see out there as maybe the next big sponsorship category in sports is lottery and particularly online lottery. Today, only about one to 5% of lottery tickets are bought online. The rest are bought in person. And um, 
you know, that's going to change. There's some apps out there like Jack Pocket, an app called Jackpot backed by Michael Rubin and some Robert Kraft, some big name investors. They're going to be digitizing that process, putting it in an app. And a lot of people think that the way they're going to have to promote themselves, since the lottery is a state-based thing, are through local organizations that can reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in cities and states. And what is one of the best vehicles to do that? Well, that's usually advertising with sports teams and on sports broadcasts, which again, kind of fits into our sort of intersection there. And with that, we know there will probably be a pretty large online affiliate opportunity to onboard customers to these apps over the next two to three years. And it's what we view as a you know huge revenue potential and will fit nicely with sort of the content bend of the site. And as I think we've talked about on this show before, I know at least we always view content as like two different types. You have content that drives audience, and then you have content that helps monetize that audience. So we're going to write 80, 90% of our content about the business of sports, gaming stocks, online casino, media, and that stuff's not really going to make any money. It might make some ad money down the line. But the idea is to build a site strong enough that we can write some really targeted content about the online lottery industry and maybe the online casino industry that can you know, extract affiliate dollars. So if you go in with a plan, not every piece of content always has to make money. We need to grow an audience. Uh, and I think we also want to carve out some clout for ourselves in these industries because it is what we know. So we're putting out a weekly newsletter, the Raising Stake newsletter. You go to RaisingStake.com, put in your email, subscribe, and you'll just get some insight. We text each other, what, Jason, like all week long, all day long, 24-7, 365. Countless. And we're usually... Uh, you know, talking about one of these three industries. So we're going to kind of distill the greatest hits of our text threads throughout the week, clean them up a little bit and put them into a weekly uh, newsletter. And maybe that creates some future opportunities for us as well that we're able to explore. I think one point I just want to make is that we did not wait till we had all of the monetization options there. I mean, in fact, I mean, we are really in no way monetizing our audience at this moment, maybe slightly with Jackpocket as a for the lottery app. So you cannot, I'll go back to my comments a few minutes ago. You, you just, you can't wait for all the lights to be green at the same time. You'll never leave town. You know, there, there's never times up like that. If that's what you're looking to do, you're just going to end up moving one little step, step by step, you get it set up, you go. And we will continue to be able to test and facilitate and get new ways of monetizing our, our audience, but you can't let things hold you back. And also, too, there's probably a lot to be said for the newsletter being certainly a type of monetization. Yes, it doesn't equal dollars in the bank account, but getting subscribers for future contact, future growth, owning an audience. Sorry, that's monetization. It's, you know, it doesn't, they don't accept it at the bank, but for us and everybody listening, they know, everyone knows how important building a list is. You go back to the episode with Jason Barrett. So anyone in the, who's a sports fan here should go listen to Jason Barrett. He has a website really targeted at sports talk radio industry. And he's got the leader and the market managers for major markets. You know, they consume his site, read his newsletter, listen to his podcast. And that allows him to have events. It allows him to get consulting opportunities. And, you know, I will say already we have C-suite level executives from major sports books, from investors, from both the US and the UK. And another, a number of, other, I would say, notable people and companies that we've noticed subscribe to the newsletter in the first four days. And, you know, what does that mean in the future? Could we get some stickiness in their inbox and then 
provide some value. And then in the future, it creates an opportunity for us. Could be advertising, could be consulting, could be something we're not even thinking about right now. So, you know, these are things we talk about anyway. Might as well put them out there and put them in front of more people. You made me think of like uh, Frank the Tank doing old schools. Like maybe it's something I don't even know about yet. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much everything we do. It's just something something I don't know about yet. I won't go into the rest of you know, that scene, but like it's maybe something I don't know about yet. Uh, so anyway, head on over to Raising Steak. You take a look at what we're doing. Subscribe to our newsletter. Let us know if you what do you think of our caricatures, which the first draft was pretty rough, but these look pretty, pretty good. So if you want to see what we look like drawn, go to RaisingSteak.com. Jason, if they like the podcast, what should they do? First thing first? They should tell two friends. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. And what else should they do? Well, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, make sure to leave us a five-star rating. And go to RaisingSteak.com. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. if you don't want to leave us a five-star rating today, go to RaisingStake.com, subscribe to our newsletter, or check it out. Tell us what you think. Uh, you could hit me up on Twitter, Kyle Scott L, Jason at Nick Z-I-E-R-N-I-C-K, and at Monetize Media HQ, all one word. Our new site is at RaisingStake, S-T-A-K-E, all one word on pretty much all the social platforms. You can follow any of those. If you hit us up and hit up any of those accounts and tell us you told two friends about either the podcast or raising steak, and you want some info uh, or pick our brains a little bit about your content business, then uh, we will do that. If you tell us two people that you told and you tag them, we will graciously give you 10 to 15 minutes of our time to talk about what you're up to. And so please do that. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon. 